0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. As I talk tonight or teach, um, let yourself listen as a kind of meditation practice itself. Not so much listening in order to remember it all, there's no quiz, no grades, um, but it's listening somehow to notice if anything resonates as true in you. Because at its best, I believe, teachings to be reminders of things that we already know in our own heart. And if it's not a reminder, it doesn't seem true, just let it go. Um, but let yourself be easy as you listen. And last month I did a talk that was a great myth, a story um, from India on the, uh, the story of Nachiketa um, and the, the Lord of Death. And I feel like I've wanted to do some stories in these talks in these months. So tonight we have a a different story. And again, I ask um, indulgence of those who've heard some of these stories before. uh, Think of them as bedtime stories. Oh, can I hear that one again? (laughs) So the theme tonight that I'd like to talk about which is so central to the practice of awakening or the liberation of the heart, is respect. Now I suppose we should turn on Aretha right now, you know, thank you. That would be the way to start properly and to honor her and her gift to us. Um, The Buddhist texts, a number of them begin with this phrase, O nobly born... O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, do not forget who you really are. Do not forget your true nature. So they begin with this beautiful expression of respect to you, that you were born with a basic goodness and and a heart of compassion that is born into every child. Um, And you were born with the capacity to awaken and live in a, a wise and a caring way in this world. Do not forget who you really are. And then it goes deeper than that, as you will see in this talk. Who are you really, it says. Who got born into this human incarnation? What is that spirit that came into this body? So the story that I would tell now is um, an Arthurian legend or story about Sir Gawain, who was one of the great knights in the Arthurian round table. And um, um, Sir Gawain was traveling through Arthur's kingdom in the countryside when he went through a very thick and dark forest, which there used to be a great deal of in England. And in fact, as a little aside, now that I think of it, I had the privilege of teaching at Oxford University a couple months ago at the Oxford Mindfulness Center, and so forth, and spent some time there. And um, as as my uh, guide said, "Would you like the full Hogwarts experience?" Because we, you know, that's where Harry Potter was filmed, and there are these fantastic old gothic you know, cathedrals and and uh, dining halls and so forth, um, which we did go to. And anyway, it happens to connect us to the forest in Sir Gawain that, uh, oh, a couple decades ago, in one of the oldest colleges at Oxford, which was built in the 1600s, um, the great beams that held up the ceilings in the in the dining hall started to get dry rot after 400 years. And the custodians and the caretakers of Oxford became concerned, you don't get five-foot-wide beams anymore at the hardware store, those old, enormous old-growth trees. And they were worried, what will we do? Maybe we'll get laminate. And then somebody said, well, why don't you talk to the college foresters? So it turns out that Oxford has a whole private forest somewhere in England. And those who built those ancient halls said, you know, someday those, those beams will get dry rot. And so 400 years ago or 450 years ago, they planted a stand of trees which were waiting for someone to say, now is the time. This is the way to run a culture, by the way. You know, to think a little bit in advance. So those are the forests that Sir Galwayne got lost in with these enormous trees and vines and creepers and, you know, the wilderness of England. And night fell, and he couldn't get out. There were brambles, and he was really stuck. And he tried with his great horse, and he couldn't. And as he struggled through the forest, he came upon a clearing, there was a bit of moonlight coming through the clouds and there was a beautiful well and he thought well at least I can rest here and quench my thirst and he drew the bucket up from the well and drank it quenched his thirst and made a place to rest and as he started to rest there the moon came out and then he heard the the horse the the sounds of the hooves of a horse approaching And he got startled in the middle of this forest. How could that be? And then he saw this great stallion approach and on it was a woman with very long hair and a cloak. He thought, well, this is interesting. (laughs) And she arrived and she turned to him and she had a bit of a beard and only a couple of teeth and her skin was all wrinkled and one eye was hanging out in one direction, and she was, she was at that time, um, well, she had a number of different names. The hag of Bera is one of the names for her. Um, Kali is her name in India. Um, Baba Yaga is her name in Russia. She is the, the woman who makes the world, who creates all things. She's, she's seen in every culture. She's the, the great old one. And she got down. She was wearing this beautiful cloak. And she said, you drank from my well. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. She said, is that all a great knight has to say? <laughs> Can't you do better than that? He said, madam, he said, if I've offended you in any way, I will do whatever I can as a knight to make up for this. She said, well, I thank you for that promise. She said, actually, there is something that you can do to make up for this. And he said, whatever you wish. She said, yes, um, I'm finding myself to be rather lonely, and so I would like to get married. (laughs) He gulped. (laughs) But he would promised, and a knight makes a promise and must keep it. And she said, yes, I would like a wedding, and I would like a big wedding at Arthur's Castle where we invite everyone. He said, couldn't we have like a little private? (laughs) She said, no, no, we have to do this right. He said, well, I need a little time to think about it. She could see his reservations, one could well understand. And he said, isn't there anything else I could do for you? <laughs> to which she replied, well, there is one thing. If you can answer a question, then, and return here, let's say in one year, with the correct answer, then I will absolve you of the, of the wish to be married. He said, certainly, what is the question? And she looked at him, And she said, what is it that women want? (sighs) He took a breath, said, all right, I'll work on it, you know. (laughs) She got back on her horse, went out through the dark of the forest, and there he was. So he got back. The next day or two, he found his way out of the forest in the light and met with Arthur, King Arthur and the other knights and told them what had happened and said, I have to answer this question. He got a great big book, those old kind, you know, leather bound, and he went with his minions around the country, interviewing women and asking them what they wanted. Some wanted wealth, some wanted many children, You know, some wanted love, um, some wanted a nice piece of land, you know, all kinds of and he wrote them all down. And by the end of the year, he'd filled the volume, and he packed it on his steed, and he went back to the middle of that forest, and sat by the well, and the moon rose again, and sure enough, he heard the horse come, and there descended the beautiful cloaked hag and she said well have you got an answer and he handed her the book he said I have a hundred answers I have five hundred answers and she flipped through it in the moonlight and said no 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 said I'm sorry you don't have the answer when shall we have the wedding (laughs) He said, well, can we postpone it a little? She said, how about next week? He said, How will be two weeks at least. We'll get it together. So he went back. And being the knight that he was, he had agreed and arranged for a wedding to take place. There was the feast, the wine, the music, all the things that happened in Arthur's court for a wedding. And then it was done. They retired to the bridal chamber. And there they are in the bridal chamber, and Sir Gawain is there with his new bride. She's seated on the side of the bed, and she says, aren't you going to kiss the bride? He hesitated, as you could understand, Then she looked at him and said, you are a brave knight after all, are you not? (laughs) He took a breath and leaned over and gave her a kiss. And immediately she turned into a glorious and glamorous young woman who had been a princess, as in all these stories. So that was a good move on his part. (laughs) And he said, "Ah, I'm so glad we're married now. And she said, yes, but there is one problem. He said, she said, your kiss has released me from a spell that I have been under. And now with this spell, I am half free, which is to say that I can be in this beautiful form for half the time at night with you in our bedchamber. But then in the daytime, I resume the form of the hag or if you wish, I can be beautiful on your arm for the day with you, and at night time I turn into the hag. Which would you choose? A little dilemma for Sir Gawain. He spent some time meditating. He'd been to Spirit Rock. He knew. That this was not a time to make a rash decision and when he got quiet and he listened deeply and he looked at her now beautiful in front of him and felt the love that was a bond that was growing he looked at her and he said I cannot choose and I will place it in your hands what would you choose And her eyes lit up and she said, Now you have broken the whole spell. (laughs) Because the answer to the question that I asked you has now been revealed from your own lips. And what it is that women want is their own sovereignty. To not have someone else say, You must do this and you must be that, and you should and you shouldn't but to be honored in their own right for who they are. And then, I won't go into details, (laughs) but they had a wonderful wedding night (laughs) and quite a good marriage following that. So this word sovereignty is an interesting word because it means respect. It means a loving respect for oneself, for others for those around us and in some way it means that we operate from the place of our nobility from our buddha nature from the that you are the king or the queen of your own realm and it's interesting because people would come to the buddha in the stories that are told anyway and they would ask him for teachings and he would give them teachings and sometimes they were you know very demanding teachings that he would give and sometimes beautiful, loving teachings depending on the circumstance. And at the end, he would look at people as they were were digesting and hearing the teachings and he would then say, to conclude, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. It's a famous phrase in the Buddhist texts who is to say, all right, I've given you the best advice that I can, I've illuminated what I can, and now I place it in your heart and your hands, and it's time for you to do as you see fit. And that gesture was one, again, of respect and sovereignty, that you are the one who determines your own life and your own heart. Every being loves respect. Your employers and your employees. Children, adults, elders, your garden loves respect. You'll notice it when you treat it that way. It's like the seven-year-old boy who went out with his mother and father to a restaurant, and the waitress came and took their orders, and then she said to the little boy, what will you have? Um, And the mother answered before the boy could speak and said, he'll have the meatloaf, the mashed potatoes, and a glass of milk. And um, he said, "Well, really, um, I'd rather have the hot dog and fries." His mother said, "No, he'll have the meat meatloaf, the mashed potatoes, and the milk." The waitress took the other orders, and then when she left, she turned to him and said, "Would you like ketchup or mustard on your hot dog?" (laughs) And as she walked away, the little boy turned to his parents and said, "She thinks I'm real." Everyone loves respect and when I lived in the forest monastery of my teacher Ajahn Chah, the whole community was built around a kind of respect. The the paths were swept in this beautiful respectful way in the forest and we learned ways to fold our robes and care for our bowls and to bow to one another in ways that offered our respect and to receive people respect. It was a field of respect that allowed us to be present for one another in a beautiful way. The natural world loves our respect. Quails and ants and rabbits and owls. And I have this beautiful poem calligraphied by Lloyd Reynolds, who was the teacher of Steve Jobs, the greatest American calligrapher. He wrote, A bug crawls over the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get. (laughs) The little bugs also want your respect. And there was a beautiful painting, it came from a photograph, and my daughter in her artist mode um, did a painting, it was for sale for a long time in the bookstore, I don't know if it's still in there, of the moment when the Dalai Lama And Mahagosananda, who is the Gandhi of Cambodia, met each other here. They were old friends. Um, And uh, by the upper retreat hall when Dalai Lama was visiting. And they each bowed, and they each tried to bow lower than the other one. And finally they got kind of parallel, and their heads bumped as they were kind of close to the earth. And they were just each offering one another respect. So a story I've read many times from the New Yorker a small unit of American soldiers was walking through the holy city of Najaf in the early years of the Iraq war when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the buildings on either side, fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the 15 Americans who glanced at one another in terror. The Author of this, a reporter, said, I was afraid a shot would come from somewhere, the Americans would open fire, it would turn into a massacre. At that moment, the American officer stepped through the crowd, holding his rifle high over his head with the barrel pointed to the ground against the backdrop of the seething crowd, now almost a thousand. It was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said officer said behind his sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he were crazy, and then one after another, swaying in their bulky body, armor, and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns at the ground. The Iraqis fell silent, and their anger subsided. The officer ordered his men to withdraw. It took me months to track down Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes to ask him about this. He assured me, When I asked, how did you learn to tame a crowd in a war zone in a distant country? He assured me that it was not part of the army manual of instruction. He said, the problem with warning shots is the next thing you know, people start shooting for real. And anyway, he said, the Iraqis felt that the Americans were disrespecting their mosque and their culture in this holy city the obvious solution to Colonel Hughes was a gesture of respect. Saved all those lives. The breathtaking freedom and beauty of mindfulness is that we can acknowledge what's so, we can bow to it as you just did, you can name it with loving awareness, and see this is the way that it is and experience whatever it is, pleasant or painful, with a gesture of respect, say this too. So I was riding with my teacher Ajahn Chah on the way to a monastery. We'd have been invited to a temple on the Cambodian border and um, a young guy in a pickup truck gave us a ride and he liked to speed like young men do. Um, the problem was it was a one-and-a-half lane dirt road through the mountains mostly empty but once in a while there'd be a bus or a logging truck or a water buffalo and he was just zipping around the corners and I started to hold on thinking okay I'm gonna die in this one because you couldn't there was a drop off and you couldn't see it was coming. Then I looked over and I saw that my teacher's knuckles were white too <laughs> and that somehow reassured me. I don't know why. Finally, we made it, and we pulled into the courtyard of this little monastery. And Ajahn Chah turned to me, and he said, scary ride, wasn't it? It wasn't like he wasn't supposed to be scared. It was like Disneyland. That was a scary ride. And he bowed to it, and he just said, yeah, that's a scary ride. Things are the way they are. We take our seat in meditation halfway between heaven and earth and offer our respect to the way that life is. And then we can respond. We see it with a kind of beginner's mind. To see it with respect. And it brings a wonderful freedom. We become aware of this body. This mysterious body that you somehow got in. You don't know how you got a human incarnation. But you did. (laughs) And you got to deal with it, right? (laughs) And you're the steward of it. To pay attention to it is neither to be clinging and obsessed with it, nor to ignore it. Remember the poem from Eduardo Galeano? He says, the church, he writes, the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. The marketplace says the body is good business. The body says, I am a Fiesta. We can pay attention to this body in many, many different ways. And with loving awareness, we become curious. What is it that this body wants to tell us, to teach us? What do we learn? How do we steward it and care for it? This all comes out of mindfulness. Mindful eating. Is this the thing that the body actually wants and needs at this point? Not making it a grim duty. But actually listening, meditation isn't supposed to be a grim duty. It's supposed to be a kind of loving attention to what wants to be known and felt. The teacher, one of the teachers I studied with where I was doing mindfulness of breath, he said, every day I want you to come in and tell me something new about the breath. Boring, right? Oh my God, (laughs) another breath. I just had one, right? (laughs) about the space between the breaths or the fact that the in was cooler and the out was warmer or you know that sometimes the breath would go all the way down to my belly and sometimes it was very shallow and one thing after another after another to really listen and pay attention Thich Nhat Han teaches this you know and, and they invited him to a conference in San Francisco a couple of decades ago um, and it was a, it was a conference um, probably in the late 80s or early 90s that had Mikhail Gorbachev, it was after the perestroika and so forth, and um, George Shultz and Madeleine Albright and various kind of you know secretary of state type folks and others there all talking about world politics. And it was time for Thich Nhat Hanh to teach, it was lunchtime. And he said, before you eat, I want you to eat an orange with me. And they passed out these oranges and he spent like a half an hour getting them to feel it and smell it and rub its texture and begin to open it. By the end of a half an hour, as someone who ran the conference said, they didn't know what hit them, basically. They were more present for their lunch and for one another than they'd been in a really long time. So that's what it means to have attention to this body and to the things that we do with this body. What wants to be respected in your body? What pain, what illness, what love, what longing? You know, that's what attention offers. That kind of care. Courage, clarity. Now, It also means that you need to respect your pain. And Jon Kabat-Zinn, the founder of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction and a great mindfulness teacher and dear friend from the early years of all of our work together, he got the inspiration at one of our retreats to start a program in the medical school in Massachusetts where he was. And he opened a clinic in the basement of the medical school and he said, I'm going to teach mindfulness to all all the people in the hospital that you doctors can't help. And he said, so he did, did rounds there, and he sat with doctors, and he said, the ones who are in pain, the ones who are really afraid, the ones where the cancer treatment isn't going well, we have a clinic in the basement, mindfulness-based stress reduction, you send them down to me. And what he didn't say, but he said to me and others, when we talked, he said, Because I have the big medicine. And the big medicine is, I'm going to teach people how to be with the truth of the way things are. And then they can decide how to respond. And most of his work was people who were trying to get out of their body, trying to fix things, trying to change things, to no avail in these cases. Those were the ones that got sent down. And he said, how about if we sit down and you start to make friends with your body as it is? And it turns out, as you know from meditation, that it's not the pain and the suffering that causes the most trouble, at least most of the time. It's the fear, the reaction, the tightness around it, the trying to get rid of it, all the stories that are told, you know. And when you let that go and you soften and you hold the pain with loving awareness, all of a sudden, most of the struggle that you're in drops away and you have a different life. You understand this, don't you? (sighs) Tibetan Lama was staying with friends in Colorado and he was a great horseman. I took one of my favorite horses, Rocky, on a trail ride through the back country. He was a very intelligent horse, but he didn't know how to walk a trail. It was a new situation. I was leading the group and that also made him a little nervous. I coaxed him over certain big rocks and shifted my weight to indicate him to go around certain others but he kept stumbling. We came to a narrow place in the trail. On one side was a steep shale cliff and the other a long drop into the river. Rocky stopped and waited for my direction. We both knew that one wrong move would plummet us into the river far below. I guided him toward the gorge, subtly subtly shifting my weight toward the high wall of shale. I thought that if he slipped, I could jump off and save myself. The moment I shifted, Rocky stopped cold and craned his head around to look at me. He knew exactly what I was doing. I could tell he was shocked and hurt that I was planning to abandon him, The look in his eyes said, you and me together, right? I shifted my weight back into the saddle and connected with him in my own center and we traversed it just fine. Attention, respect to the situation we're in, to our own body, to the bodies of others, and to the body of the earth which these days is calling for respect. And on this past weekend, there was a you know, there's been this whole big week of climate change events in San Francisco, um, shepherded by G- Governor Jerry Brown, leaders from all around the world and so forth. And we had a day of um, some leaders and people who are uh, offering teachings and actions for climate change here at Spirit Rock on um, And it was quite full. And one of the many wonderful speakers, Joanna Macy, who's fantastic and so forth. And one of the speakers that I also did a panel with was a woman named Christiana Figuera. She was the United Nations Special Representative um, to create the Paris Climate Accord. She's had a million different honors and so forth. She also created the Rio Climate Conference. She's been doing climate conferences and bringing roping these mostly men um, together, bringing them together now for decades, working on climate in a remarkable way. Multilingual and talented and diplomatic and all those kind of gifted things, but she's also a long-time Dharma student of Thich Nhat Hanh. She said that happened when I was at my bottom and I couldn't figure out how to do this, and I went to Plum Village and I met Thich Nhat Hanh, and he taught me what it meant to be centered in myself, and to see the best possible outcome, to see the goodness in one another, even though they're fighting, to make myself that place of peace. And she said, what happened in Paris was that we were able to shift the dialogue, she said we, but it certainly sounded like she was a big part of it, from the victims and the perpetrators, who were the bad countries and the ones that have been the victims, you know that story, to our common humanity and that shift of perception from victim and perpetrator to we're in this together made the Paris Climate Accord possible. So respect for the earth, for our own bodies, for one another, respect for our feelings. We have this river of feelings. You know, sometimes I read this list of 500 emotions that we have. Anguished and antsy and apoplectic and amorous and um, argumentative. I just start with the A's, you know. (laughs) And you go on and on and on, right? But how do we deal with them? We get caught in them. We hate some feelings. We love some others. Or can we be respectful? This is what sadness is like. This is what loss is like. This is what longing is like. As the poet Hafez says, don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it cut more deeply. Let it season you like few divine ingredients. Because we all have loneliness. It's part of being a... Human, you come in, and you're kind of alone in that journey. I mean, you're with your mother, but all of a sudden, there you are, a baby. How did this happen, you know? And then you go out, and people can love you and tend you, but it's like, okay, you're on your own at some point. This is the reality of it. We're deeply connected, and at the same time, we have every other kind of feeling. We have love and longing and disappointment and hate and fear and, and, you know... Every kind of emotion. So what do we do with it? A friend of mine, Arturo Bihar, was a vice president at Facebook, and his job in part was to be, to tend the, um, the problems there. He was like the complaints department. But when at his time they had, you know, 1.1 billion users, now it's closer to 2 billion, he said it didn't take very long to get a million complaints. So what do you do? He said, a third of them were technical complaints. I give it to the engineers. They fix them. That's what engineers do. No problem. Okay. But most of them were complaints of conflict between people. You posted a picture of me and I don't look good. How dare you post a picture of my children without permission? You said this about me. And all these things between people. So he would send them the boilerplate. Our policy is... That if it's lewd or lascivious or hateful, then we take it down. Otherwise, we leave it. No one was happy. So then he said, you know, there's got to be a better way. And he began to experiment. He sent out to all the people who were complaining about someone else. He said, why don't you ask them what made them do it? What was their motivation? Why don't you tell them first how it made you feel? But then he found out that people didn't know what they felt. So he sent out those little emoticons, you know, happy, sad, or whatever. Now tell them how it made you feel. Now ask them a question. It made me sad or angry or upset or something. Now ask them what made you do it. And when he began to invite them to talk about how they felt, And then to be open respectfully to what was going on, he said people would say, well, I thought you looked good in that picture, or I love your children, and I thought other people would want to see it. He said 90 plus percent of the conflict was eliminated because people talked to each other respectfully. He said, I get to teach social and emotional learning and conflict resolution to 980 million people. You know, (laughs) it's a very cool thing. So with loving awareness, you begin to have the capacity to name the ocean of tears that you carry, the grief, the fear, the joy, the delight, the longing, all the things that make you human, to hold them all and to trust that you have the capacity to be present for them. James Baldwin, I imagine... One of the reasons, and I read this probably every two or three Dharma talks that I do, because it's so meaningful at this time. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their own pain. That means that we project it on the immigrants, the Mexicans, the black people, the brown people, the yellow people, somebody who's different than us, the Communists, the socialists, or whatever, the Communists were the enemy de jour when I was young, you know, now they're coming back around. We get them again, right? Um, but when we can't honor the fact that we're vulnerable, anybody not vulnerable here? Raise your hand, you can have your whatever it is 12 dollars back or something. you know that that's our human life that we are vulnerable, we're vulnerable to one another, we're vulnerable every time we go through an intersection and people respectfully stop at the red light so you can go through the green and be safe. And here, because we're unwilling in, as a society to recognize that we too are vulnerable, that we're all interconnected, that we also have our own losses, you know, whether it's the losses of jobs or the losses of America as the superpower, maybe not quite as super as it had been, or whatever it happens to be, um, or the fears that we have. When we can't deal with them, we project them on others. People cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their own pain. And to do that, takes courage, dignity, and it's tremendously empowering. It brings a kind of inner well-being and freedom, and it means that when you're respectful of your measure of sorrows and your fears, as well as your beauty and your creativity, you can be respectful of others. It's really radical. But this means respect for feelings, because they run the world. During the Columbia... Civil war of the last fifty years or whatever—it's terrible. Um, the FARC and others that were in the jungles fighting the government toward the end, before the peace process that happened recently in this last year or two. Those who were trying to support the peace process got photographs of the families of people who'd been in the jungle for ten and twenty years and scattered them in the jungle and there were pictures of your children who'd grown up or your you know your family members or your mother or your father and little notes and messages to them and that touching the heart of the people who'd been living there reminded them yeah reminded them about some love that trumped you know their anger So we learn to be respectful of our body, of our minds, of our feelings, minds. Minds are, you know, that what's that bumper sticker? A mind is a terrible thing to lose, something like that, it said, yeah. Well, even if you don't lose it, you sit with it, you know, it's not always a picnic. It's full of reruns. 90 plus percent of those thoughts you had today, which you thought you were kind of lost in mostly, they were like the same thoughts you had yesterday and the day before. It's like you're stuck in the Motel 6 with the shopping channel on and you can't turn it off. <laughs> Who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy. No one can harm you more than your mind untrained, said the Buddha. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. No one can help you more than your own mind um, well cultivated and trained. Not even the most loving family member, the people who care for you. So respect means to look at what's in our own mind. The kind of thoughts and say, oh, this is a judging thought. I hate judging thoughts. I don't want to judge anymore. Judging is so stupid but what's that, right? It's more judgment. <laughs> what you can do is say, oh, thank you for your opinion. That's the judging mind. I appreciate that. And that's the fearful mind, and that's the doubting mind. You can't do this right. You never do it right. You know, thank you for your opinion. We know whose voice it is. We won't talk about them. Thank you for your for your guidance. I'm okay for now. You know, and then the beautiful thoughts that come of what's possible, the inspiration, the creativity, the the love, all of those things. And you start to see that your thoughts really aren't yours very much. They're just conditioned things that have been programmed in there for a long time. And you start to shift your identity from my views. The Buddha said people who cling to their views go around the world annoying one another, right? (laughs) This land is mine, these children are mine, these are words of folly from a person who doesn't know even he is not his. Even your thoughts are not really yours. They come unbidden. And you start to shift to where you contend and honor and respect and so forth. But your identity shifts from being caught in all the experiences that happen and you become loving awareness itself. You become this space of mindfulness that has a kind of original innocence, a listening with your heart, and it expands the sense of who you are. You have your measure of tears and sorrows. You have your extraordinary gifts. The world has an ocean of tears and its unbearable beauty. And you let yourself say yes with a compassionate heart. This is our human lot. And bow to it and say, yes, now let me navigate seeing it the way it is, holding it with a space of loving awareness. And as that happens, you expand the sense of self. You don't take things quite so personally. You know, you weep with all the parents who've lost a child or all the parents whose children are in prison or all the parents whose children are ill. It's not just your child, you know. And you rejoice with all the parents whose children succeed. Because it's our children. It's not yours, it's ours. You know, and you carry them in you. George Washington Carver. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. And that's the gesture of respect, that we all get to play parts, as Shakespeare says. You are a man or woman of parts, and to be able to hold this with respect and loving awareness. The listening project coming out of the Quakers, nonviolence, going to Sudan and Libya and North Korea, group teams, just wanting to sit down with the people that the world vilifies and say, I want to listen to you, tell me how it is for you. And it's a radical gesture and a transformative one to do it. Even dogs like it. <laughs> this man had a you know, big Rottweiler and he thought, maybe he learned from the vet that it would be good to give it cod liver oil So he would call it over and then grab it, hold its mouth open and pour in the cod liver oil, and the Rottweiler hated it. But one day as he pulled the dog over, the bottle fell, and there was a big puddle of cod liver oil on the floor. And after he let go of the dog, the dog went over and licked it all up. It wasn't the cod liver oil that was the problem. It was the way it was being administered you understand the whole path of awakening is respect when people ask for a little attention it's not a little thing it's a big thing and a generous heart is what you're born with to not harm yourself or others to refrain from causing harm with your actions to not kill to not steal and so forth those are gestures of respect of reverence for life. Wisdom and compassion sees the way things are with tenderness and respect and then you can respond. But you have to respect the way it is first. You have to respect the fact that there are 10,000 nuclear warheads still active on this earth before you can do anything about it. You can't pretend they're not there. You actually let that terror of that reality also have a bow And then you say, all right, what can we do? What are our steps to do? It can change the world. The elderly, the youth, the teens, the disenfranchised, the rich, the poor, the Palestinians and Israelis, and the Hutus and the Tutsis, and the Christians and the Muslims, and the Buddhists and the Jews and the atheists. Can we listen in a respectful way to ourselves, to one another? What a world it would be if we offer this. Now somebody might raise their hand and say, well, what about the big difficulties? What about racism? Such a crazy thing. What color are you? You're green, brown, blue, something. As if, as if that made any sense. What about our prison system? Millions of people incarcerated and, you know, almost 10 million people, whatever, in the current... The prison industrial complex, a racist poverty prison, which is also our default mental hospitals. What kind of culture? What about the endless wars, you know? Whether it's Syria or South Sudan, or the people of Tibet, or our own cities and places you know, also needs respect. I tell the story of working with Michael Mead and Luis Rodriguez and others running retreats for young kids getting out of street gangs from Oakland and Chicago and L.A. and so forth. And they come in with their hoods up and their hats back and like, You're going to do some poetry and teach me some meditation and shit like that? Come on, man. I'm on the street. People got nine millimeters. you got to give me something better than that. And so we will take a candle and light it and put it in the center of a table and say, there are too many people in this room who need respect that haven't been acknowledged. Would you go out in the parking lot and collect a stone for every young person you know who's been killed? Put it buy this candle and say their name. And these kids will come back with their hands full of stones. This is for Tito, and this is for RJ, and this is for homegirl. All the names. But when that's done and the candle's there and the stones are piled up, the hoods come down, the hats come off, and they say, okay, we're going to get real here. Let's talk about this. There's a respect for what they've survived and what they've lived through. So, what about racism and war, endless war? This is respect for Mara. Mara is the Indian god of aggression and temptation and who, who attacked Buddha, in the myth anyway, on the night of his enlightenment with all the possible temptations and then with the armies of Mara and all the doubts and so forth. These are not small forces, the power of greed of hatred, of fear, of delusion. Civilizations rise and fall. You know, wars happen from these forces. But they're not the end of the story. Mahagosananda, that Gandhi of Cambodia that was bowing to the Dalai Lama, was a part of the world campaign that got the Nobel Prize for trying to get rid of landmines. And when he went to the U.S. Congress, he said, what concerns me is not just the landmines in the earth. And he would asked me as a friend if I would collect money for artificial limbs for the thousands of children in Cambodia that needed them. He said, that's not what concerns me. He said, what concerns me is the landmines in the human heart. That's what he said to the whole U.S. Congress. That's where we have to start. War is not the end of the story. People think that only force is, you know, the way to run the world. The only thing that can meet violence and greed and hatred, the only force big enough, as Martin Luther King said, is soul force. After the church was bombed and the four children were killed, everything, you know, torn apart, he said, we will meet your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering and we will not hate you. We cannot obey your unjust laws, but we will soon wear you down with our capacity to suffer and in loving you, we will bring you so far along that in the end you will come to that place of love as well. That's another dimension of respect. It's love, really. We want it. The people around us want it. The earth needs it. Without mindfulness, without loving awareness, we get lost in separation, in addiction, in grasping, in protection, in isolation, in fear, in racism, all those things. They're all sources of suffering. And yet, mindfulness, loving awareness... It us the doorway to a freedom in ourselves, in this human incarnation with its 10,000 joys and sorrows. And it offers a possibility for the society as a whole. After Oxford, I went to teach in Parliament in England. It was really wonderful. I talked about it before recently. You know, 185 members of Parliament have signed on to the UK Mindfulness Group, Mindful UK, reports of how they're going to put it, in the national health care system and in the uh, education system and so forth, um, something in them knows that we need this. And when we sat together and facing Brexit and all the political turmoil that's there, and we did meditation, they said, you know, this is the best thing we do all week. It wasn't all of them. It was like 20 MPs and members of the House of Lords and 20 25 people. So this is the best thing we do all week. We get quiet. We meditate. We listen. Then we listen to each other, even from different sides. And we can relearn this. We all have our measure of tears. You know. We all have our disappointments. But we also can treat each other in different ways. I was leading a men's retreat here some years ago with my colleagues Wes Nisker and Robert Hall, dear friend and wonderful teacher, who's now right near the end of his life in hospice. And um, in the evening we would have a council where men would come into the center in small groups and be given a question to talk about fathers and sons, you know, or talk about um, money, or talk about what it means to be a man, or talk about their sexual history. One of the things that was very evident with those questions is that everybody was confused. There wasn't a single man (laughs) who got in the middle and didn't talk about whether it was their sexuality or fathers and sons or whatever, didn't didn't have some confusion how to be a man. Just in case you're interested to know that. We're in it together apparently. But anyway, there was a fellow there who was talking about how we treat one another as men. And he had a radio show in Los Angeles, a blues show. And um, it was on on Sunday nights. And he said, I have a big following um, inside the prisons. He said, so one day I got a letter from this man, George Jameson. And he said, I'm a follower of your show. I'd like, you know, to make a request. Could you give me, you know, could you put on your show some of the really early great blues legends? Mississippi John Hurt and Blind Lemon Jefferson. And um, he listed a number of other blues greats that he'd like to hear. So the week after, this fellow went on his radio show, and he said, I got a letter from George Jameson. You know, and he's obviously a man with understanding of the blues and its roots and a great aficionado, and I'm going to play for him some of the early Mississippi Delta blues and, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson and Mississippi John Hurt and others, and he did. And a few weeks later he got a letter, again from George Jameson, and he said, to this man, thank you so much for playing those blues greats. He said, and I want to tell you, that's the first time in my life I can remember my name being said with respect. Imagine that. Imagine that. You don't get it in prison, you can understand, but you also don't get it, you know, in some childhoods and in some neighborhoods and in some communities. A year or two ago, we have a prison project that was born out of Spirit Rock at San Quentin that was the Insight Prison Project, or Inside Out, different names for it, and Jacques Verdun has been the main steward. And there was a graduation in San Quentin that I went to to be a speaker, and there were a hundred men with mortar boards and and graduation gowns who'd gone through a year-long program, grip guiding rage into power, learning mindfulness and, and uh, anger management and bodily practices like yoga and things to tend themselves. And they stood up and they had a kind of um, class speaker who stood up and, and read a thing that we were violent men and we now pledge and then they all stood up that you, we will never use violence again in this world. Um, to solve a problem. It was very moving. And um, we want to offer a deep apology to you and to the society and to all those that we've heard. And there were several hundred people witnessing it, state senators and mayors and people from the corrections department. So um, I I gave a little teaching, a little talk. And then Luis Rodriguez, my buddy, Latino, great Latino poet, he was the poet laureate of Los Angeles last year, author of La Vida Loca, My Gang Days in L.A., and worked a lot in the prisons. He says proudly that his book, La Vida Loca, is the most stolen book in high school libraries around the country, you know, so it's obviously a read. For Anyway, he got up to read a killer poem, but he said, I can't read my poem first. I have to say something. He said, you men stood up and apologized to us, but it's we who have to apologize to you. You know, because many of you are in here because you had a childhood of disrespect, of abuse, of poverty, of drugs, of racism, of um, being part of a community that was marginalized and attacked. We as a society have failed you. And I want to offer you an apology on behalf of those who are outside. And then he read his poem. It was a very moving moment. To reverse it, he offered the kind of respect that these men deserved. So, this is sovereignty to honor the gift in every human being, to honor the gift of your own body, to honor the gift in, in others. And we can all learn it. We all have our measure of disappointment. That's where the heart grows wise, you know. Ellen Sirleaf and Lehman Gaboey, who won the Nobel Prize in Liberia, she says, Ellen Sirleaf said, Liberia used to be known for its child soldiers. Now they remember our country for its women leaders. Turn that one around. It means it's not the end of the story, that when we bring respect, the story can be changed. And then we become able to bless. Whatever we pay attention to, to offer that respect or that sovereignty, that honoring, um, becomes a blessing. Nelson Mandela It never hurts to think too highly of a person. They often act the better because of it. And uh, William Butler Yeats, who talks about all the blindness in his life and all the ways he's fallen into the ditches, he says, and yet I'm content to live it all again and yet again if it be life to pitch into the frog spawn of a blind man's ditched. I am content to follow to its source every event in action or in thought, measure the lot, forgive myself the lot. When such as I cast out remorse, so great a sweetness flows into the breast, for we must laugh and we must sing. We are blessed by everything, and everything we look upon is blessed. When we understand this quality of respect and that we are this world, this is it, we are it, then it becomes possible to treat ourselves and those we meet with this gift of attention, of loving awareness, of respect. And it brings a freedom and a dignity and a kind of blessing of sovereignty to yourself and to all that you touch.